Hello, welcome to T Hangs from the Memories. I'm your host Darren, and today we're going to be talking about a film that, in various times, I've called extremely loud and incredibly loud and extremely close and incredibly close. But of course, it's just actually called extremely loud and incredibly close. Um, probably the stupidest title for a Tom Hanks film up to this point. Uh, we can get into discussions of it. It was released on Christmas Day 2011, obviously looking to get itself into that Oscar window, and we could talk about how successful it was in smashing its way through that window. Uh, it was a flop. It only made $15 million on top of its budget, and its budget was definitely not $15 million. It was a lot more than that. Uh, despite appearing in a small part of the film, Tom, of course, is getting top billing. He's sharing it, of course, with Sandy Bullock. Um, and we have a newcomer, um, who I'm not sure they get, he gets billed on any other posters, um, Thomas Horn, who is playing Oscar in this. Uh, joining me to talk about today, I have Keith Harrison Allison. Hello, Keith. Hey, Darren. And I have Robert, you'll hear his name a lot in this summation, Black. Hello, hello. <laughs> and uh, Robert was telling me before we started that it was entirely a coincidence that his surname mm -hmm. is mentioned so many times in the film. He did not pick the film for that particular reason. Um, no. You know. I think he just probably picked the film because he was feeling a bit masochistic and wanted to watch something terrible. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a weird relationship with this film. We can get into that when we... Okay. And uh, Keith picked it for... I mean, returning, of course, from uh, the epic that was Dragnet, which ended up being a two-parter because there was so much to go into Somehow. about Dragnet. Yes. Um, <laughs> the first time that Tom didn't take top billing, I think, Dragnet was, wasn't it? Well, uh, as, as kind of... Which is interesting. Um, but yeah, so Keith did actually choose to be on this as well. I mean, I, I, normally I don't question the motives of why my guests choose to be the guests <laughs> on a particular episode you know for me i have no choice but obviously everybody else had a choice on where they could put their name on the spreadsheet um but keith's reason is related to what i just talked about which is of course this positioning itself as an oscar contender um mm -hmm. you know which looking back is kind of unusual um but they did benefit from the expansion that happened where it went from instead of being five best pictures and best directors which tended to be the same five films um although there are some notable exceptions no. i think driving miss daisy and maybe platoon might be two where the director got nominated but the film didn't um, yeah driving miss daisy is well it was it was very rare that uh, all five matched up perfectly um it right. tended to be cases where three out of five or four out of five would match and then usually one of the best picture contenders would be replaced by a director with perhaps a more noted vision whereas the picture contender might be a bit more populist in, in some way uh, i'm thinking of like um like star wars getting in for best <laughs> picture uh, no, oh no star wars actually got in for george lucas but oh george uh, lucas got, uh, got nominated I, I forgot that he, he did, did for that yes yeah. uh but i was thinking like the fugitive getting in for best picture but then robert altman getting on for shortcuts for director for example but yes. uh yeah uh, yeah so but they, obviously they expanded it and that meant there was more slots uh, which went through an extremely complicated math problem uh, to get there, mm -hmm. uh, but they've changed that now. So you know, as of we as of the recording here, we've had the announcements for this year's Oscars, but they you know this episode will go up after the the winners have been announced. Um, so we we I mean I don't think there's any from this year where the director didn't get nominated for best picture as well. Um, we just end up with a situation where we end up with like five extra nominations for best yeah. picture outside of the directors, don't we? Yes. So some interesting context for this. Uh, to that point, 2009, they expanded the Best Picture lineup. So it went from five nominees to 10 nominees. So just a full, even slate of 10. And then uh, they did that for two years. And there was a little bit of backlash from Academy members who thought that the brand was being diluted a little bit much to expand to a full 10. 
and as a result, they revamped it again for this Oscar season in 2011, where they changed it so that there could be anywhere between five and ten nominees. But in order to get one of those slots, you had to earn at least 5% of first place votes on the best picture submissions that Academy members were sending in. And it has been said or has been studied by people who have looked over the data that it is pretty much nearly mathematically impossible for there to be a full 10 nominees under that system. So as a result, for the succeeding 10 years, we had basically either eight or nine nominees. Um, mm -hmm. It was nine for a while, then three at the middle, and then it kind of went back and forth. And finally this year, we've gone back to a full 10 um, in 2021. Yeah. And then obviously this film did actually get nominated for Oscars. Um, you know, it's directed by Stephen Daldry, <clears throat> who himself had previously been nominated. In fact, he'd only directed um, two films before this, and he was, which was Billy Elliot and the Hours. Um, oh, this was his fourth. He also did oh, this The is, Reader as well. Oh, yes, The Reader, yes. How can I forget? I yeah. saw that at the cinema. Um, and I didn't see the other two. Um, and yes, my, my Stephen, my Stephen Daldry streak is literally this film and The Reader. That's it. Uh, I only saw The Reader for Kate Winslet, of course, because, you know, she was fantastic in that. Um, uh-huh. Uh, and of course, did win. Um, you know, uh, you know, making a prediction that she did on extras come true. Uh, not te yes, technically did. speaking, not true. She was she wasn't technically a Nazi in it, but you know. Um, so, so uh, Stephen Daldry, this is his, you know, fourth film. Um, he was as with um, uh, Sam Mendes before him and Tom Hooper after him. I, I'm a little fuzzy on the because I'm sure Tom Hooper started after this, didn't he? After '96, he, he made his debut in uh, directing films that got nominated let's say um you know there's always one british yes. director that's allowed to be nominated for stuff um <laughs> and and it was sam Mendes, and then he won and then it passed on to to stephen Daldry, who was nominated you know for three years in a row he didn't win personally but obviously he had a lot of nominations and a lot of wins from those those films um and then you know now tom hooper has ruined his reputation by doing cats um so i don't think he's going to be getting nominated for anything in, in the near future at least um, but even Stephen Daltrey has gone quiet after this film. Um, you know, he like he directed this film and then uh, obviously wasn't that well received. Uh, it's one of the yeah. it's one of the like the lowest like after um, after like 1990. It's one of the the lowest like um, rated Rotten Tomato score for a Tom Hanks film outside of the mm -hmm. Da Vinci Code trilogy. <laughs> uh, which I think are the only three films that have lower ratings than maybe Ithaca and The Circle, but you know, like those films didn't really get wide releases. You know, this was a this was a fairly wide release. You know, yeah. but poorly reviewed. Didn't make any money. <laughs> so how did it get Oscar nominations, Keith? That's the question, isn't it? Right. So I think uh, a big case here is I think it's two big things, which were number one, it had very baby subject matter, which is of course nine eleven, and I think yeah. there is a there's a lot of discussion every year about certain types of films that the Academy will respond to, whether they are well-received or poorly received. There are just certain genres that are going to have an instinctive um, bias amongst members. And like World War II films, uh, films dealing with immense tragedy or transformative films in real life, people are ones that are going to be the kind of things that stand out. Whereas, for example, horror is something that will always have Academy was a little bit... Um, a little bit resistant there are people there are obviously yep. exceptions that break through like get out or the exorcist of course but uh that is something that is an easy way to at least open the door 
I think what also helped is that this was a film that was on a lot of long lists going into 2011. You know, people who knew the movie was coming out and kind of just figured immediately, like, oh, Stephen Daldry, a regular Oscar favorite, uh, you know, featuring Tom Hanks, featuring Sandra Bullock just two years after she won the Oscar for The Blind Side. That's something to keep in mind. And uh, the movie obviously came out and did not get great reviews, but I think the, the combination of that, that hook of the, the pedigree and also the the sentimental factor involved with the movie was enough to to land itself on in the minds of a, a couple of Academy members, or at least enough to get it this far that it did, I suppose. It's funny because, like, uh, recently uh, we have had uh, House of Gucci, which delighted everybody, of course. Um, and I remember the trailer for that being, like, Oscar winner Lady Gaga, Oscar nominee Adam Driver... Oscar winner Jared Leto, Oscar nominee Jeremy Irons, Oscar winner Al Pacino, and then, you know, Oscar nominated uh, Ridley Scott. And it feels like, you know, this is like Oscar nominee Stephen Daldry, Oscar winner Tom, you know, double Oscar winner Tom Hanks, you know, Oscar winner Sandra Bullock. Like, those are the things you can put into the trailer. And, you know, regardless of whether or not that actually makes a difference, but it is kind of true that once you get nominated for an Oscar, as is the case with Jared Leto, in House of Gucci, <laughs> an Oscar winner. Um, it's a lot easier on your next few films for the Academy to be like... I think the Stephen Daldry thing is kind of, you know, it's like, oh, he, you know, Billy Elliot got nominated, not him personally, and then obviously The Hours had a lot of high-profile people who were, who had either been nominated or have won. Yes. And then you've got, you kind of get on this role uh, where, you know, you've, you've got a bunch of names where the voters are like, oh, I remember, I remember that person. Um, and they're not all Kirsten Dunst, who, of course, when asked what films yeah. do you have to see, she said, I've watched them all. And, you know, not everybody does that, but they do recognize the names. Um, yes. And that maybe that plays into it a little bit. It definitely does. Absolutely. Once you're in the club is the term often used for that. There is yep. obviously going to be given more leeway um, and like people are going to know who you are. And that's going to make it very easier to get the project seen and more people to uh, keep it in mind when it comes time to vote. They also spend. They also spend extra time together because they do like the luncheon where all the nominees hang out before the awards, and then after the awards they spend a bunch of parties. So there, there's extra networking between all the people who were nominated or won. Absolutely. So that certainly helps their next choices, and they're a new draw to the box office. So they, they get to interact with each other just. A little bit more and do projects together i would also say as well you know you have uh scott rudin as well as like not a nice person we have found out in recent years but which producers are quite frankly um i will say there is at least one good producer in hollywood and his name is dan etheridge and he worked on um veronica mars and he did some podcasts mm. and he's a very nice gentleman and he is a nice producer <laughs> scott rudin not a nice producer um, but he, he, you know, he obviously worked on a film that I covered extensively, The Social Network. Uh, and, you know, sure. he'd he'd won for No Country for Old Men a couple of years before this. Um, and obviously, since then, he's done stuff like Uncut Gems and, you know, Lady Bird and Girl with Dragon Tattoo. And um, earlier in his career, he did Zoolander um, and The Truman Show. Right. Uh, and, of course, another film I covered extensively, Clueless. So, you know, um, and obviously he was also a producer for a lot of Wes Anderson films. So I think his name as well as, you know, a producer on this probably also helped. And obviously with it being a Best Picture nomination, 
he's one of the few people whose name is going to go on the statue if it had one. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Scott Rudin, of course. Yeah. Very, of course, controversial man, but uh, one of the most successful producers in Hollywood at this stage. Uh, you know, I believe the first the first person to ever get an EGOT solely for producing. Um, oh. So just shows quite how huh. uh, titanic his his uh, reach in the industry was across various different networks here. And he certainly had the might to get this film going uh, and getting eyeballs on it. And of course, adapted from the novel by Jonathan Safran Fur, I'm going to say for a surname. Yeah. Um, uh, whose first book, uh, Everything is Illuminated, was uh, adapted into a film um you know three years before this uh quite close to it um directed by Liev schreiber starring um frodo from lord of the rings literally like the year that he was doing <laughs> lord of the rings so obviously high profile to have elijah wood in your film uh did not make any money um <laughs> i don't think Liev schreiber's directed anything in 20 years um and maybe he has but i certainly haven't heard of anything um, I think there was a circle, at least that I was in, where that sort of name recognition of the novels helped also. Yeah. Because this novel came out right about the same time the film version of Everything is Illuminated came out. Yeah. And so there was like that extra push. And I read this novel okay. and loved it. Oh, well, there we go. See, I, I was going to say, had but either of you the read movie, the novel? leaves out my favorite parts of the book okay well i mean uh, while we're talking about the book yes i mean what is left out i mean because i was gonna say i hadn't read the novel i don't know if keith had read the novel the the movie barely tells us anything about the grandparents yes and their why their relationship is what it is yeah we got a line from tom hanks where he says my dad didn't decided he didn't want a family and he walked out yeah and then we get hints later on that the renter might be the grandfather he yeah I mean, but there is a whole backstory that alter like alternating chapters of this backstory of those two, yeah, the the grandmother and the grandfather, and how their lives came together because he was married to her sister or involved in a relationship. They might not have been married, and then he gets together with her out of sort of like obligation. Yeah, but they don't love each other. Okay, and their their house ends up becoming this thing where. They're so traumatized by their experience in the bombing of Dresden and their past that they don't even know how to talk to each other and they end up ignoring each other. Okay. And their house becomes this sort of map of what they call nothing spaces, where if they go into a certain part of a certain room, the other person acts like they're not even there. And so they actively pretend they're not in the same house. And it is one of the saddest things like I ever read in a book. I'm not. I, I've got to be honest. I'm not sure how they would have managed to get that to translate onto the screen, right? You know, because obviously, but that was something I was looking forward to yeah. when this came out, and and then it, it barely touches on it, and I'm like, but that's what makes the kids' story work for me. I mean, the film is two hours and something, so I'm not sure. Right, I'm not sure how. Much, <laughs> I was going to say I'm not sure how much more of the film we could have uh, tolerated, but yeah, I mean. It does really focus everything on Oscar. Um, you know, he has a lot of um, voiceover throughout the film. So, uh, you know, again, like any, a lazy way to adapt a novel is just to have one character constantly read voiceover. This is probably the most cliched observation you could make about about um, art these days. But I do feel like if this novel were adapted today, they would make it a miniseries and there'd be an episode just solely spent on the grandparents' relationship. And Yes. In that way. And that would be the best episode. That yeah, would be up for Emmys. <laughs> I mean, is it is it confirmed in the novel that the the renter definitely is the grandfather? Um, I don't think 
the that the the book is narrated by the kid. Okay. And I don't think he ever con- is conclusive about it, but the booklet gives you enough information that you can. Be. Yeah. Because in the film, it's, it's kind of left a bit ambiguous. And also, again, because right. like, it's told from Oscar's point of view, he might be just connecting some dots that aren't there just so that he's yeah. got someone to look up to as like a, a you know, a father figure, um, you know, now that, you know, his his father is obviously dead. Um, and and the kid's narration in the book was apparently well received by critics. Like, uh, I do remember the reading Guardian that. did a thing about yeah. the 10 best child narrators. Yeah, I do right. remember. I do remember reading that a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, we should say Jonathan Safranfer has written a couple of other novels after this. Uh, the mm-hmm. first of which is insane to try and explain. Uh, Tree of Codes. <laughs> <laughs> he basically took somebody else's book and cut out a bunch of words and left a bunch of holes in the pages. And apparently, uh-huh. the book is extremely expensive to get hold of because yep. it is, you know, having worked in the printing industry myself, that would be an absolute nightmare to fix. Like you've got, I don't know how you would have to have like something special where a press just sits there and cuts out pages to be specific things and then binds them in a specific uh-huh. way. It's just it would be. Well, a, and they, it, I think it was wire bound. I've never yeah. actually seen a copy directly. I've I want one, but looking at the cover, it I looks think it's like wire bound. They couldn't do a hard cover. Oh no, because because the thing is, do a hard cover with the when you print books, like you have to have like you know if a book's a hundred pages, page one and two are next to page one hundred and ninety nine. There's right. no way you could do this and, and you like saddle it stitch way. it, and it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they had sense. to print each page individually. Yeah, so, so that seems that seems insane, but that came out like in in 2010, so that was you know just shortly before this film came out. Uh, no one has tried to adapt that, um, which I think is probably because this well, film they adapted it into a ballet. Yes, well, yeah, I was going to say not as a film, but they did Apparently. adapt it into a ballet again. I mean, I, if it was to, it's funny because obviously you know Stephen Daldry did adapt Billy Elliot. Uh, you know, which was then later it turned into a, a stage musical. So maybe he should he should try going the other route and turn this the ballet into an actual film. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so and then he's he did another novel that came out like five years ago. But he's you know done a couple of nonfiction as well. So, um, but yeah, this feels. I mean, it feels like the the failure of this film is probably gonna make it a little harder for him to get stuff adapted in the future. I don't know if he really cares about that. Um, although we did find some interesting stuff, if people want the goss, uh, the page six goss, um, some interesting stuff about his private life, where apparently he divorced his wife so he could attempt to get together with Natalie Portman, uh, which is, I, I mean, they have like a similar <laughs> kind of background, in, but I don't know. It just, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, he like he was married to a woman for ten years and then just divorced her because he wanted to go off, and he did end up with Michelle Williams, the actress, not the singer, uh, for a, a few years. Um, so Wikipedia does not note who he's been dating since 2017, but uh, yeah, um, I mean, I guess shoot your shot there, Jonathan. You know, um, oh boy. <laughs> there's a lot of messiness in that. For sure. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, uh, yeah. So, uh, but uh, like you know, I, the book was well received. You know, that's the that's the, I you know, it's one of those things where you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, there is there is a kind of a, a, an easy saying which is you know. Uh, good books make bad films and there are some bad books that have made some great films um you know people note this with jaws and the godfather um and <laughs> you know i think in this case maybe it is maybe it is just like the you know what they cut out probably would have made this film a bit more tolerable um but you're also putting a lot on the shoulders of thomas horn um yeah and you know uh, max von Sydow obviously was nominated for his performance in this the only other nomination outside of the best picture and 
uh, I think it's a good performance. Like, he's basically in, like, the middle half hour of the film, and, and he doesn't say a single word. And, you know, much like when Morton got nominated for Sweet and Lowdown, um, you know, obviously mm. it takes a certain level of skill yeah. to get nominated as an actor and not say a single word in a film. So, Same. you know, that is worth noting. Yeah, I remember uh, Max Pensito's nomination being a mild surprise as well because he had missed a couple of the precursors that year. Um, and I think the the critical favorite of the bunch who got ignored was Albert Brooks and Drive. So when he got in, it was a a one of the, I guess, a slight harbinger of the Best Picture nomination to come and how passionate it was. I mean, it also just weird that it was only his second nomination in his career and his final one as well, his last one being back in the 1980s so um i agree he is i think one of the better parts of this movie for as much that is cut out uh he brings a lot of dignity to yeah. his uh his emotional toil and i actually did not mind the nomination either when it came out yeah we, we you know we lost him in uh 2020 i think literally the week before lockdown started for covid19 uh, over here i think 8th of march was like literally a week before we went into full lockdown in the uk I- I, um, I would just have to interject as a, pro, a professor of communication oh, studies. Technically, he does speak in this movie. He just doesn't use... He doesn't do it verbally. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he, I mean... Un- he, he, has, he has his yes and no on his hands. He has his notebook. I mean, obviously... A distinction, for sure. I mean, we have a deaf actor nominated this year, which is... Yeah, that's true. Uh, Troy Kotzer. Congratulations to him. Samantha Morton was nominated. Obviously, her character didn't literally in Sweet and Lowdown. Doesn't right. doesn't even communicate uh, with paper or anything. She literally just stares. Um, in a <laughs> connection that is quite interesting, uh, obviously Max von Sydow, who was born Carl, which is really I mean Max is a stronger name, quite frankly. Um, he was in David Lynch's Dune, and the writer of this film, yeah. Eric Roth, who had previously worked with Tom Hanks. Um, on Forrest Gump, obviously to great success. Um, and then he worked with Kevin Costner on The Postman to less success. And then he worked with Robert Redford on The Horse West Britain. <laughs> you know. Uh, and then he did a couple of Michael Manns before finally hooking up with Steven Spielberg on Munich, which is one of only two Steven Spielberg films that I own. The other being Catch Me If You Can. Ah. Um, so... <laughs> so um, but yeah, uh, and then um, I mean, I also own Lucky You and Case of Benjamin, uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which are you know the next two films that he did. Um, obviously, Benjamin Button I refer to as Benji Buttons because uh, I did Social Network and I had to speak about that, that film as well because <laughs> I had to get people's opinions on other David Fincher films, and you know I'm a huge fan of uh, Benji Buttons. Um, and then this was his next film after Benji Buttons, a- another extremely long title. Um, and but then in recent years, uh, he did nothing for seven years. I think he did some TV, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> he did House he of Cards. He was a producer on a bunch of TV. Yeah, he did. He did House of Cards. He killed a couple of horses on Luck, um, and then he did Berlin Station for a, a couple of years as an executive producer. Like, the the weird connection I just made is he was a producer on the second season of The Alienist. Yes, which adapts the. S- book angel of darkness which i could not read because he switched narrators and i hated the new narrator <laughs> and then with jonathan saffron for his books i love the movie of everything is illuminated but hate the book because i can't handle the narrator <laughs> and then i love this book and have a weird yeah thing with the movie you've got to you've got to write to these authors robert and say look stop doing this to me give me a good narrator yeah. that i can get behind um, but then he was Oscar nominated, I think, for Star is Born, Eric Roth, if I'm remembering yes. correctly. And did he win for You're that correct. one? Or am I, uh, who won that he did year? Not. 
That was adapted. So that would have been the Black Klansman year for Spike Lee. And his yes, team. great film as well, which features a Prince song at the end. Obviously, I did a podcast on Prince for two years and covered <laughs> yeah. like all 500 and something episodes. So connections all over the place. But most recently, um, he has been nominated for Adapting Dune. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, I mean, I, don't, I mean, are we thinking he's the favorite to win? Obviously, I don't know how to turn this into an Oscar predictions episode, but uh, I don't know what Dune's going to win. I don't know if it's going to win anything, to be honest with you. I mean... It feels like the nominations yeah, are screen- meant to be enough. Uh, screenplay, I would say at the moment, uh, Power of the Dog is looking pretty solid there. You know, the perspective yeah. best picture frontrunner at the moment. Uh, maybe if there's some love for Coda or Drive My Car, Coda being obviously very emotionally appealing um, mm-hmm. movie, Drive My Car, Breaking Through with Best Picture, uh, perhaps it could get some adapted love there. But I would say Power of the Dog currently it would be the frontrunner okay. whereas dune is i mean em- more eric roth is a known classes. name so you know he's won a couple of times before it might be uh you know people might be like oh maybe he should win again because uh, you know we love the postman didn't we um and also he <laughs> has uh written or adapted i think it's adapted isn't it uh killers of uh, killers of yes. the flower moon which is um coming out at some point this year directed by martin scorsese uh famed director who loves all marvel projects um yeah, so, I mean, Eric Roth has just, it's like, uh, what's weird is I didn't realize Eric Roth had been working since, like, the 70s, uh, personally. Like, I th- I thought that he had, like, with, with like, um, Forrest Gump, I thought he'd, his career had kind of started around there. I didn't really talk that much about Eric Roth uh, during the Forrest Gump episode because we were mostly concerned about how terrible the novel was and how the guy who uh, wrote the novel <laughs> hated the at the film and, and made fun of it in the sequel. Um, so we didn't really get into Eric Roth in that, but apparently... Uh, he wrote Concord Airport 79. So, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, so he was doing stuff around. in the 70s and he didn't really do much stuff in the the 80s. He worked, of course, with uh, Tom Hanks's um, nemesis, uh, Henry Winkler, on Memories of Me. Um, famously, uh, apparently, Henry Winkler is one of the only people in Hollywood who actually hates Tom Hanks. Um, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so I, <laughs> I'm not sure why. Um, but then he also worked with Mike Figgis um, on, a, on a film called Mr. Jones, which I can't say I've really heard anything about, but apparently it has Richard Gearing and uh, Lena Olin. Love Lena Olin. Um, you know, so it might be worth uh, maybe taking a look at that. Uh, Delroy Lindo as well. Love Delroy Lindo. He's always good. Um, but yeah, so, you know, he's worked with British directors before. Um, and uh, yeah, he's got a Martin Scorsese film. He got nominated again. Um, apparently, he was also a victim of the uh, Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, <laughs> and he lost um, pretty much all of his money, uh, which is why he kind of started writing again after this film. This was apparently his kind of retirement, and you know he lost so much money with Madoff that basically that's what kind of sent him back to um, you know to kind of do some more films to get some more money so um you know so i hope he also adapts the 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 dune sequel when that comes out and he also gets some money from that because you know eric roth you know i like what uh you know i like what he does um you know Mm -hmm. the insider a great film wonderful if if people haven't seen the insider 1999 such a year for films but the insider was you know probably one of my favorites of that year um, and I saw a lot of films in 1999. Probably my favorite of his his work, The Insider, I would say, for Eric Roth. I would throw that down there. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I made the mistake of seeing this film at the cinema. Um, I saw it on the 28th <laughs> of February, 2012. Fortunately, the next day, I went and saw uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene. So, you know, I kind of made up for it, you know. And that was on a leap day as well. That was the 29th. So, you know, I... 
uh, it's nice to see a film on the 29th because it's one of those rare things isn't it so um but yeah so i saw it at the cinema uh, i went on an afternoon i don't think it was it was in screen 11 not a very big screen so probably not that many people in there um and yeah i was just like by the end of it because i you know I'd, I'd, i hadn't read the book but obviously i'd seen a lot of the press about the book um you know and i kind of knew this film was coming out obviously i'd seen the reader so i kind of knew about Stephen doldry so i was like oh this you know seems like it'd be interesting I can't say I remember the trailer in any particular way. Um, you know, so I was just like, okay, you know, it's got Tom Hanks. Uh, you know, I'm free this afternoon. Let's go to the cinema. And uh, I think, I've got to be honest with you, I think February 2012, I probably saw like 10, 15 films that month. Um, because a lot of like Oscar films that come out in America in like December, you know, they tend to get held over here until like February. So it, as as, as yeah, like the, the actual thing approaches you know, we uh, we, we kind of get to see some of those films. So uh, did either of you fellas see it at the cinema? I know Keith was a lot... Keith's a lot younger than us, Rob. So I, I don't think he would have been old enough to see it at the cinema. Um, uh, I live in L.A., so I saw it. <laughs> I may have actually seen it on Christmas. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember what movie we saw on which day, because December is generally... See a lot of movies as soon as it's yeah. winter break. Go see a bunch of movies at the Arclight, which isn't there, there anymore. And or Lemley Theater, it was here. Uh, I saw it at ArcLight. I know that. Probably on Christmas, and despite everything it was missing and all its flaws, that first time I kind of loved it. <laughs> uh, like each time I've watched it since, I'm like, this is a really structurally messed up, and it's missing something. It's going for wholesome when it shouldn't be. Yeah, it, it feels like it takes the wrong tone at almost every turn, but because I had just read the book, it still worked because mm -hmm. that was still in my head. And I had also adapted part of the book for a speech that two of my um, when I was a speech coach for speech team, two of my students did a performance of the old the grandmother and grandfather's relationship. Oh, wow. Yeah, this was my 19th out of 20 films that I saw in February that year. Um, at the start of February, I actually had a run from the 1st through to the 12th, where I saw a film a day. Um, nice. And I saw Sh That's how my December would have been. Yeah, I saw I saw Shame, The Grey, Jack and Jill, uh, Young Adult, uh, Chronicle, Man on a Ledge, Journey 2, The Mysterious Island, um, hmm. uh, Carnage, the 3D re-release of Phantom Menace, um, the Vow, uh, The Muppets, and uh, I saw Young Adult twice. Uh, I saw This Means War, Big Miracle, which is that whale film um, about that whale that gets stranded. Uh, the Woman in Black, uh, One for the Money, which I think is a... I can't remember who's in that. Um, Catherine Heigl? Catherine Heigl? Yeah. yeah. Based off like an, a, a book series, I think. Yeah, it's, ba yeah, it's based off some popular yeah. novel. Yeah, it's the first one, isn't it? They all have numbers in the titles as they go up, and there's like 25 of them or something. Uh, I saw Safe, Safe House, the Ryan Reynolds Denzel Washington uh, vehicle. Uh, unless I'm completely. Is it Denzel Washington in Safe House? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yes, that, yeah. that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, and then I saw Rampart, uh, and then Incredibly Loud, and then Martha Marcy Marlene was how I finished my month. Um, yeah, so that was a very, very busy month. Um, I'd seen The Artist the previous month, uh, which obviously would end up winning the Best Picture. Um, so did you see it at the cinema Keith or not no 
I would think. I did not know. I actually do remember the trailer. Um, I haven't rewatched it lately, but I do remember the usage of the uh, the U two song, where the streets have no name, was very dominant throughout that that marketing. Um, and yeah, I was a big Tom Hanks fan. I, w- I would have been uh, seventeen years old when it came out, so I was looking forward to it as a um, as a fledging Oscar geek who was expecting this to be a big awards player but i didn't catch it in theaters after the critical reception was rather uh unenthusiastic let's say and it was only i think years later when i finally got around to it as part of a oscar capture for all the best picture nominees from this decade i had not yet seen yeah and you did actually forward it to us the video of the the nominations being announced for best picture and it is such a bizarre video i feel like the listeners should at least seek it out just to see the yeah. weird reaction. Uh, I, just, I just found my list okay. for 2011. Oh, great. I okay. saw it on the 27th of December. Ah, uh, okay. I had just rewatched Everything is Illuminated apparently the night before. Oh. Ah, wow. Really and the same day it. I went and saw Final Destination 5. Uh, uh, so that's a weird mix. <laughs> Final Destination 5, uh, probably, I mean, I don't know if I could call it the peak of the series because I think number two is probably still my favorite, but uh, the twist ending right. at the end of it is... It's probably one of the best in any kind of horror series. Um, it is a clever little bit of fun they have there. And yeah. <laughs> how they, it's a nice toy. It's one that does kind of, I suppose, track. Uh, it, it, it's just a lot. Of, you know, did you have anything else you want to go over your list, Robert? Or Oh, you know, no, I just I just thought it was funny. <laughs> it was, uh, well, the girl with the dragon tattoo was on the 26th. Oh, yes. Oh, no, I, th- I think I saw that on Boxing Day as well that year as well. We bought a zoo as the movie we saw on Christmas. Oh, of course, perfect yeah. Christmas Day, twenty eleven. Watch, I'm sure there are many. Yeah, we're taking a trip to that zoo for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Darren, since you brought it up, maybe I can go over the best picture announcement. Yes, uh, let's, let's so do that before we jump into the film. Let's talk about that nomination because I feel like we have to. It's you know, it's kind oh, of yeah. of course. So just to you know to build on what we said before, this was the first year where we were having anywhere between five and ten nominees, and so as a result, there wasn't really an idea of how many nominees there actually would be. Uh, and so I remember as a teenager watching the Best Picture presentation, watching the Oscar announcement live, and this is the most memorable Best Picture presentation that I have seen since I've been following the Oscars in 2007. <laughs> uh, the uh, Academy president were, was there with Jennifer Lawrence, and they hadn't uh, prompt or a television sort of graphic or video screen behind them that would show the nominees after each one got announced. And with the way the graphic was set up, they would have Jennifer Lawrence would read a name, and they would show the name of that title in the back center of the screen, and then it would come on one of the side columns of the screen. So with the way the space was set up, it looks like there were going to be eight nominees this year. And what really exacerbated things was that while usually nominees get read out in alphabetical order, for some reason, they just chose a random order to read out the the names this year. So they started out with Warhorse, and you thought, okay, maybe they're going reverse alphabetical. But then I think they followed <laughs> up with the artist. So it's very clearly whatever, what come may. So we're all we're off in the weeds here. And they named the eighth nominee, and I'm thinking, okay, we're done. We have these eight. These kind of make sense. They're all ones I was sort of expecting to get in. And then finally, Extremely Laughed Incredibly Close comes out, and... It takes up the, the center screen of the video. And not only does that blow my mind, but then someone in the audience starts cheering loudly for yep. the name when they had been silent for the preceding eight names. And I just remember thinking, 
is that the person who single-handedly got this a Best Picture nomination? Because I did not realize just how well this had resonated with 5% of the Academy. <laughs> I mean, was it and Scott Rudin? Uh, maybe yes, yeah, maybe so. Maybe someone working for <laughs> Yeah, One of his I, I, uh, PAs he hadn't fired yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's weird because I think out of, out of all the nominees that year, I think uh, War Horse was the only one I didn't see at the cinema. Um, hmm. I saw everything else. Um, but because War Horse was from like uh, it's from like a play that was over here and it had like a yes. very specific thing where on the stage they have like this giant kind of puppet horse um, and then like Steven Spielberg adapted it, was, it, was huge... it oh yeah no like gigantic like huge it, horse like a huge stage. Tony winning success I remember the year leading up to yeah. that it was just the talk of, yeah. of Broadway there was, it, was, it was like there was so like because of the way they did the horses on stage and the way they, they did the battle scenes and everything like it was everything was so well staged that it's like it was that was what it was known for and then Steven Spielberg adapts it and it's just about a horse and it's yeah. <laughs> and it's like I feel like you've missed the very essence of what was so great about the stage show of this thing and you just turned it into another film about a horse there was also a trailer that they kept playing all the time and you just had this guy when he at the end he just keeps saying something about keep running keep running keep running and they just repeat it over and over at right. the end of the trailer and <laughs> you just see this horse and I, you know it looks like it's an okay film but I was just like oh, I just it's not my speed quite frankly um, I'm not going to see that yes. I'll see everything else um, and it, it was it, it got like I believe a kind of a more muted reception at the time but at least you know Steven Spielberg kind of makes sense that it would at least get into a field of eight or nine um, what also struck me about Shimmy Aloud looking back, and I shared this with you guys off off mic before, uh, it has a very noted distinction as both being one of only five films since 2009, since the expanded era, to have gotten Best Picture with only one other nomination. The other ones being The Blind Side, A Serious Man, Selma, and The Post. Those are all two-time nominated films. And then also going by uh, Metacritic score, it is far and away the weakest or has the lowest score of anyone that has been nominated since then with the next ones being don't look up and go here at 49 the blind side at 53 jojo rabbit at 58 and joker at 59 uh extremely loud and Clever close has a 46 so quite very uh distinct position for it to be in of the academy's choices in the last 15 years yeah and years. with 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 this year's nominations obviously it struck me rotten tomatoes put out like a, a graphic that people felt was a slight against one particular film because all the films <laughs> apart from one were rated fresh you've got nine rated fresh films and then you've just got don't look up sitting there with like you yeah. know 46 percent on rotten tomatoes and people right. felt like rotten tomatoes was taking a shot but it's just an accurate it's just an accurate list of the scores they got there's no there's literally no judgment. It's just literally this is this is how the critics felt about these films. Like they just list in the ten for you. Um, and it yeah. does it does kind of highlight too how for while I'm sure we all have films every year that are nominated for this picture that we perhaps do not care for, we did not really connect right. to. But for the most part, every film or almost every film that gets nominated for this picture has a generally agreeable reception from critics and audiences. One of the two, at least. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even stuff that maybe you know we look back on. Personally, is not liking that much. Like Green Book, for example. Green Book got like a 69 on Metacritic, which is not great, but is in the green. Uh, it's rare for something like Extreme Loud and Clearly Close, which got a 46 and is firmly in the yellow, to uh, manage to go all the way across the finish line in, in that way. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's like it's. It's one of those things where, like, you know, people. I mean, you know, there were criticisms of Bohemian Rhapsody when I saw it at the cinema. It was a sold out screening, and this was like about a month after it had come out, and people were going nuts for it. 
Um, you know, people yeah. just love Queen songs. Let's put it like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, crosses mm-hmm. every generation. Everyone loves Freddie Mercury. Um, and that film made like almost a billion. So you can understand that it right. gets the nomination just based on the, the box office success. And obviously, you know, the one performance, like you can kind of get away with that. Um, this film, I'm not it, like it failed at the box office and critics didn't like it. So, you know, we have to piece together how it managed to get just those two nominations. I think Max von Sydow, we've said he gives a good performance, um, you know, without uh, really speak. well placed for your consideration. Ads. <laughs> well, yes, I, I, absolutely. Probably. I mean, it, just, it just goes to show. Yeah, that is the that is the thing. The pedigree, the the amount of uh payments on the part of Scott Rubin and company just uh it's a very much a Dr. Doolittle situation I would say in terms of just <laughs> yeah what yeah you guys in the academy you, you know you see the ads you you know what we need right now right yeah, throw <laughs> us a vote <laughs> 